You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Hello and welcome to episode 96 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel comic series The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and we have four episodes and a wake-up left as I wind my way down through what's left of my coverage. And this particular episode is the first of the lasts for this podcast, because this is the very last episode where I will cover anything featuring The Punisher. Throughout our series, we've encountered Frank Castle in several storylines. Two Punisher invades the Nom storylines in the main Nom book, a trade paperback called Punisher and the Nom Final Invasion, and post-Nom stories in Punisher War Journal and Punisher War Zone. This particular episode is a little special because the Punisher issues I'm looking at are not from the era I've been covering. They're from the more current iteration of the character. On this episode, I'll be talking about three storylines. The four-issue miniseries Born from 2003, Valley Forge, Valley Forge, that ran in issues 55 through 60 of the Punisher series that was running in 2008, and... I will then follow that up by looking at the six-issue miniseries Punisher the Platoon from 2017-2018. The song for this episode is not from the Vietnam era, but it is instead from the 1980s. It is Brothers in Arms, the title track to the 1985 Dire Straits album. The song was released as a single in the UK in 1985 and peaked at number 16 on the charts there. It is not about Vietnam, more specifically it's about the Falkland Islands War and was originally written during the conflict in 1982. I know that with a few exceptions I have been using era-appropriate material for intro songs, but in this case there's a thematic appropriateness, especially considering the comics I'll be discussing. And you can download several versions of this song, the album version is about 7 minutes long, and you can stream it online, I highly recommend doing so. Our comics this time are three separate storylines in three series. And what I would do is, uh, usually do, is cover each in a separate segment, which each of those segments being a separate plot summary and review. However, the writer for all three series is the same person, and after reading all three, I want to recap it as one large story with three distinct parts. So while I'm going to let you know where the different parts of the story all begin and end... You'll be getting a huge recap of all three series, followed by my review. The first of these three stories is called Punisher Born, which was published from August to November of 2003. I don't have the individual issues, but instead read this via The Trade, which I got digitally from Comixology for about $6.99. I should point out that these storylines are all readily accessible through both trade paperback collections and digital downloads. I don't have a Marvel Unlimited subscription anymore, so I'm not sure they're available on that service, but I'm assuming that because they are recent comics. 
All right, well, the first series is more than 15 years old at this point, but it's more recent than, say, like, the stuff from the 80s and the 90s. So I think that means it's more easy to come by. Some of the older Punisher stuff is not necessarily available online. Our creative team is as follows. Garth Ennis, writer. Derek Robertson, pencils. Tom Palmer, inks. Paul Mounts, colors. Virtual calligraphies, Russ Wooten, letters. Nick Lowe, assistant editor. Joe Quesada, editor. Associate managing editor, Kelly Lammy. Managing editor, Nancy DeKesian. And our top editors were Joe Quesada, editor-in-chief. Dan Buckley, publisher. And Alan Fine, executive producer. Wieslaw Walkuski did the cover art for each issue, and they are painted variations of Frank Castle as a soldier with a skull showing underneath his face. Issue number one shows the skull peeking out from what looks like a blown-out portion of his helmet and face. Issue two is the face with the exposed skull in the jungle. Issue three echoes issue one, but instead of a skull, it's smoke and fire coming from the blown-out helmet. And issue number four shows hands covering the face. They're striking. They seem to have the feel of a 70s or 80s horror novel cover than a comic cover. And I would say that's the type of thing that you want when you're competing for attention on a comics rack in the 2000s. So the series story titles aren't anything significant. They are the first day, the second day, the third day, and the last day. We open in late October of 1971 on Firebase Valley Forge. It is seven miles from the Cambodian border. A group of soldiers watches what I think is a C-130 troop transport fly overhead and then get hit by an anti-aircraft fire. The plane begins to plummet toward the earth, and when they realize that it's coming right for them, they flee. Out in the bushes, a platoon who was taking bets on what would happen, after, and after money is exchanged, they move on. It's then when we meet our narrator, Stevie Goodwin, who is a soldier in the platoon and is so short he can taste it. He's down to 39 days in a wake-up. He humps it through the boonies, thinking about how he is so much looking forward to his ride home, and vows that he, quote, won't fall in love with war like Captain Castle. And leading the pack is Frank Castle, who eventually will become known as the Punisher, and who at this point is one of the most well-known officers in the Marine Corps. He is on his third and what will be his final tour in Vietnam, since coming on this patrol six months ago, not a single man in his platoon has been killed in action. Goodwin recaps what he knows about Castle. His first tour was during Tet in 68, and because of his success, he wound up getting recommended for Special Forces. But now it's 1971 and the war is winding down. He's been sent to Valley Forge because the group of soldiers there is a group that is less than exemplary, and the Marines figured they had to send him somewhere. As Goodwin says, for Captain Castle, he is running out of war. The patrol humps it through the bush and comes upon a river where a group of VC are moving supplies. They set in and begin firing, killing the entire convoy. They then clean up and return to Firebase Valley Forge, where Castle makes his report. Castle says that despite the fact that they killed 21 VC and nobody in his patrol was hurt, the amount of ammunition they were running along with booby trap munitions, as well as the fact that this is the third supply run they've hit of the VC carrying NVA equipment, suggests that Valley Forge is going to be attacked and they should be prepared. The colonel, who is disillusioned, drunk, and done with everything, blows off Frank's report and tells him that General Patton will be showing up to do his inspection and that Frank will be giving the one giving the tour. Knowing that the colonel is not helping him one bit, Frank leaves his office and takes the assignment, which does not go well because Patton lectures him about how the colonel's command is a disgrace because the firebase is completely messy, there are drugs everywhere, and nobody has respect for senior officers. Castle points out that the last person who tried to restore order wound up getting fragged, which the general says isn't something that happens. Frank then goes on to explain that a Valley Forge is undermanned by 50%, and most of the troops who are there are some of the worst that the Marines have to offer. There is no discipline because even the non-coms are terrible. They are also short of all sorts of supplies, and while he's been able to put together a good platoon, if they can't be supplied to maintain patrols, then everything will be for naught. The general thanks him for his candor and then says they're closing the base anyway. Frank comments that this is the last lookout station watching Cambodia, and it's not a good strategic move because the NVA and VC are working through Cambodia to cut the country in half. The general then proceeds to lecture him about how unpopular the war is and how it really doesn't matter because they're close to the end of their involvement in the war. He walks toward the chopper, and then Frank tells him that he is incontrovertible evidence that Firebase Valley Forge has to remain open. The general reluctantly follows him to a ridge, the top of which Frank says offers a better view. General Patton 
climbs the steps to the top of the ridge and gets his head blown off by a sniper. Frank takes a few steps away from a sign he was blocking that reads, Danger, Sniper at Work, Dawn to Dusk. Later, as the general's body is loaded onto a chopper and the grunts talk about how it really isn't that much of a loss, we get black narration boxes with white text that appear to be a sort of internal monologue of Frank, something dark inside him, talking about how he loves the blood and the carnage and how he can, quote, fix it so you can do this forever. Suggesting that Frank may be fighting whatever darkness is inside of him. Part two opens with two men interrupting a third. This guy's name is Angel, and they're interrupting Angel before he begins to shoot up some heroin. They get him geared up while they head out on patrol. Stevie narrates that he's keeping an eye on Angel because Angel saved his life once, and he also notes that he's so short he could stay out of patrols and combats if he wants to, but he doesn't because he has a commitment to the men he's serving with. Suddenly, several soldiers are shot. There are VC in the trees. Captain Castle grabs the M60 from Patrolman McDonald and begins firing like Mac and Predator after Jesse Ventura gets killed, and he takes out all the snipers. They manage to capture one VC alive, a girl, who a couple of the soldiers, including McDonald, proceed to rape. Frank stops it by blowing her head off. Stevie, who didn't participate, is off to the side, trying not to vomit at the sight of it, thinking that he has to go home. He spots McDonald washing his face off in the river. Castle walks up to McDonald, sticks his boot on his head, keeping his face underwater and drowning him. Then he throws his body in the river. He's never found. Back at the firebase, Angel tells Stevie not to let what he saw get to him. Later that night, Castle approaches Stevie, who is drinking alone, and asks him what made him keep quiet about McDonald's drowning. Goodwin says that he was scared and asks about the girl. Castle says she was never going to be of any use anyway. If he had gotten her medical treatment, he would have lost their trust, and turning her over to Intel would have yielded nothing. He tells Goodwin that he doesn't need to be scared of him, but Goodwin narrates, he definitely is. Part 3 opens with a bombing run. Stevie's commentary that they cannot lose in Vietnam because they are using so much firepower, it's a show of American might. But he wonders aloud to Angel why they can't stay out of the affairs of the rest of the world. His thoughts are interrupted by two fast-moving jets that fly by. Frank and the colonel also see the jets, and Frank notes that they are flying low because of an approaching storm. The storm, he says, is going to be very bad, and that means a lack of air support. The colonel is pretty nonplussed and notes that everyone knows the war is almost over, staying consistent with his not listening to Frank in the first issue. Frank considers fragging him, but he doesn't. That night, the voice in Frank's head returns, wondering what stopped him from doing that, especially since nobody would have known or cared if he did. The voice keeps telling Frank that he can give him the ability to push past his sense of duty and honor and become what he knows he wants to become. The rain pours down. Frank visits Goodwin, who is doing maintenance on the ammunition supplies. Frank talks to him about his family in Brooklyn. He then spots Angel headed for someone else's bunker, which suggests he's going there to get high. Goodwin heads there and the voice chides Frank for thinking of his family and other good things in his life because those things are preventing him from being what he wants to be. Inside the bunker, Goodwin hits Coltrane, who had been giving Angel his smack, in the face with the butt of his rifle. He takes Angel out of there and back to his hooch, where he talks about how he's got so much to live for, especially since he's almost short. Angel says there's nothing to go back to. Goodwin then says they shouldn't be in there, and Angel agrees, and then tells Goodwin he has a naive view of what America actually is, shedding a light on racism and the strife of the area where he, Angel, is heading back to. Goodwin tries to protest, but Angel won't hear it, and their discussion is broken up by explosions. The base is under attack. They get on the defenses the best as possible, and Castle again grabs the M60. He begins pouring it on with the others, and they hold things off as best as possible while trying to get Da Nang on the radio for an evac. However, the storm is playing hell with communications, and the colonel is not helping at all. Defenses begin falling. The NVA and VC make it into the perimeter of the firebase. Angel stands in the middle of the base and shoots at anything that moves, cursing the entire time before having his head blown completely off right in front of Goodwin. Goodwin runs for cover and is assaulted by Coltrane, who wants revenge for earlier. Castle then comes up behind Coltrane and knocks him out with a shovel. The base is completely overrun with the NVA. The colonel has killed himself. The NVA cuts communications, and it looks like Castle and Goodwin are the only ones left. Goodwin sticks with him and sees two U.S. fighter jets on a run, blowing up the base to take out as many NVA as possible. Castle yells for Goodwin to pop smoke so they see him and they don't kill him. 
He gets the canister out and pulls the pin. When the canister bowls purple smoke, an NVA soldier who was on fire charges him with a bayonet. We then cut to Goodwin getting grabbed from behind and thrown into a 747 where he is waited on by sexy flight attendants. Castle is killing everyone around him as the voice talks to him, telling him that this is a situation he wanted and all he had to do was say the word and give in, and Frank says, yes. We cut to some time later. Several choppers have landed and another platoon is there. They are looking for survivors and they find only one, a beaten and bloodied Frank Castle, who is surrounded by dead bodies. The lieutenant tells the sergeant not to worry about what happened. They just need to clean up and head out. As they do, we see the body of Stevie Goodwin. We end with Frank Castle in his dress blues arriving at the airport where he is greeted by his family. He tells his wife and two kids that he's not going back and that he's done. He has his family and that's the most important thing. But as he does, the voice comes back and it reminds him that he said yes to the offer that was made. The offer that more or less turned him into a killing machine against all of those men, whom he more or less beat to death right there while taking seven bullets. The voice then reminds him that there is a price for saying yes, and we see his wife and kids in a full-page splash, and they are framed by the outline of the Punisher skull logo. The voice says that it's too late and that it will happen. Furthermore, in a couple of moments, he's going to forget what the voice is saying. Scared by knowing that somehow his wife and children will die, and that will push him over the edge, he hugs his family. So that is the end of Born, and about five years later, we get the next storyline, Valley Forge, Valley Forge. This is from the Punisher series. It was part of the Marvel Max imprint. It was published from 2004 to 2009. The five issues that make up our storyline are issue 55, which came out on March 12, 2008. Issue 56, which came out on April 9, 2008. 57 came out on May 14, 58 came out on June 9th, 59 came out on July 16th, and 60 came out on August 23rd. Uh, the cover dates were May through October 2008, and the cover price was $2.99. And thank you to Mike's Amazing World of Comics for all of the price and dating info for these books. Tim Bradstreet did all of the covers from the series, which are striking pinup illustrations that in some cases do tie into the story. There's the Punisher in profile, a group shot of Vietnam-era soldiers, Frank armed and wearing a gas mask, a shot from behind Frank as he wears a trench coat and holds two pistols while facing the silhouette of what looks like an angel. Frank looking through the sights of a rifle while firing, and another profile of Frank holding a gun. They're much different than what we get in the 90s era, which are very action-forward and deliberately almost over-the-top dynamic. These are much more slow in their presentation. They're much more purposeful. There's a heft to them that it suggests this story is going to go much deeper than the shoot 'em up action we may have seen from the Punisher in the past. The creative team on this is the same throughout every issue. It is Garth Ennis, writer, Goran Parlov, artist, Lee Lawfridge, colorist, Corey Pettit, letterer, Brad Johansson, production, Daniel Ketchum, assistant editor. Axel Alonso, editor, Joe Quesada, editor-in-chief, and Dan Buckley is your publisher. Each issue has what has become common in a number of Marvel books in the last 10 or 15 years, which is a recap page. For part one, we're given a bit of, re of a recap, which what has come in prior storylines, and that's that a mercenary named Barracuda was sent after the Punisher, and he tried to get at him by surprising him with the presence of the daughter Frank didn't know he had. Frank, however, did defeat the Barracuda. And I make sure to note that because while Frank's daughter does not factor into the storyline, the men who hired Barracuda do. The entire storyline is called Valley Forge, Valley Forge. There are no individual titles for the issues. It's just part one, part two, etc. So here we go with the entire story at once, beginning with the fact that we get our storylines title from a book by a man named Michael Goodwin. He is the brother of Stevie from the last storyline, and the subtitle of that book is The Slaughter of a U.S. Marine Garrison and the Birth of the Punisher. Between the storyline and the platoon, Goodwin's search for the Punisher's origins, back before the murder of his family and more in his tours in Vietnam, this will serve as another anchor point in a framing device. Goodwin's book is exerted throughout the six issues and details the destruction of Firebase Valley Forge, which we saw in the climax of the Bourne storyline. 
Goodwin's motivation for writing his book is twofold. He wants to trace the origin of the motivation for Frank Castle's becoming the Punisher, but he's also looking for some detail and closure regarding the death of his brother Stevie. After the first excerpt, we get a conversation in a New York bar between Frank Castle and Nick Fury. They discuss the current war in Iraq, which is going worse than expected, and when Nick Fury mentions the book, Frank blows it off by saying he doesn't read the books and says he has work to do. They finish their drinks and go their separate ways. Cut to a golf course where several influential men are discussing the fact that the Barracuda failed in his mission, and Frank Castle still has a tape with damning evidence that will implicate them in a number of crimes. They have in the past tried to subdue or kill the Punisher, but they have failed, even coming into direct conflict with Nick Fury on at least one occasion. They are pretty sure that Frank will not use the tape as evidence, as they point out blackmail has never been the Punisher's M.O. However, they do have a problem they need taken care of. They decide that they are going to launch a military-based operation within Brooklyn to take him out. The rationale is that if they use American soldiers, it is likely that Frank won't kill them because they are honorable and more honorable than mercenaries and the other lowlifes they usually send after him. One of these men, General Perino, dispatches Lieutenant Geller to find Colonel Howe. This is the man they would like to front the operation. Howe has some experience with the Punisher and it's implied that it's not positive. He agrees to the mission and tells Geller that he will get the tape back for the general and his colleagues, but he wants to take Frank in for a trial. Howe tells Geller why he joined the Special Forces, and it's because after being captured and put in a tiger cage by the Viet Cong, he was rescued by a Special Forces operation and decided that he wanted to join so he could, quote, do the job properly instead of being helpless and outclassed. We get through this through flashbacks to his capture and eventual rescue from Nam, he says his motivation for taking down Frank Castle is that he doesn't do things the right way and he dishonors America. Howe introduces Geller to the group that will be running the ops. They're a Delta Force type team and talk about how they will go after Frank and take him down, doing a rundown of psychological nature as well as how he operates. They obviously realize that he is a formidable opponent, and they proceed to continue to study him by sending two of them to one of the crime scenes where he recently took out Armenian gangsters. Later, they head in the direction where they believe the Punisher has his headquarters, and while staking it out, they're caught. He beats them up, they're able to complete their mission, and plant a tracker in his trench coat. They track him to one of his hideouts and flood the place with tear gas, but he's waiting for them, wielding a bat and wearing a gas mask. He takes on several of them with the bat, and then he gets away by detonating a flash grenade. The Special Forces team retreats and meets the next day with Howe, who starts to strategize with them about how they are going to go from there. The generals show up and are livid when Howe reveals that the Punisher got away. He coolly responds to their fury by offering to train his replacement. While he's arguing with them, one of the men tells Howe that the tracers become active again. We see Frank having a beer at a bar while fidgeting with the tracer. They follow that tracer to a cemetery in Brooklyn where Frank is standing, having strapped dynamite to a large statue of an angel. He demands to talk to Howe, and Howe, who is escorted by his armed men, agrees. Frank reveals that he knows the names of the men who are after him and says, They aren't soldiers. They're executives in a corporation. And that Howe is just the latest person being used for this particular purpose. Frank continues to explain that he knows exactly why they are after him. The tape he has is 20 minutes worth of footage implicating these generals in terrorist actions in 2005. Howe wants the tape and wants Frank to turn himself in. Frank refuses and pushes the trigger on the detonator. It's not dynamite, but it's gas, and this gives him cover to take out a few of the soldiers. Amidst the gas, a small fight ensues. Frank is able to fight back pretty well, but is eventually tased enough to be taken in by Howe and his men. Later, one of the generals, General Perino, gets an update from Howe, who tells him they have the Punisher, but not the tape. This infuriates Perino, who responds in a pretty racist manner. Howe goes into the room where they're keeping Frank and tells him that it's the tape that's the bigger issue with the generals. He says he realizes that Frank was more than likely telling the truth back at the cemetery, and now he wants Frank to take him at his word, especially because, like Frank, Howe did three tours in Nam, and he knows that the word of a soldier such as himself is very important. 
Frank directs them to a locker at Grand Central Station. They retrieve the tape, and while it looks like things are over and his men are ready to move on to another job, Howe still has Castle captive. Howe reviews the tape, which is an interrogation of a man named Rollins, who details something named Operation Barbarossa, which was basically these generals setting up a fake terrorist attack in Russia that would nearly succeed and therefore convince Russia to join the United States War on Terror. We cut to the generals discussing the situation. Lieutenant Geller is reporting that Howe isn't letting anyone near Castle, and he's still insisting on putting Frank into the legal system. This isn't good for the generals, who want Frank dead, and they think Howe is too upstanding and on the straight and narrow. They decide that they need to find a workaround so they can have Frank killed. Howe continues to watch the tape where Rollins is disclosing that the other part of Operation Barbarossa was that the generals were trying to weaponize a deadly virus that was inert in a six-year-old Siberian girl. The generals had contracted the Punisher to do it under the auspices of a rescue mission, and when it was successful, Frank and Nick Fury refused to turn her over to them. He then calls someone he refers to as Mr. Chairman and asks if Rollins ever gave him anything. He suggests that the general destroy the tape and then gives his copy to Frank, saying that he won't use the tape because of the problem it would cause to the country. And Frank asks, where does that leave us? Howe places a gun on the table in front of Frank and says that there are eight bullets in it. He then asks Frank why he does what he does, and Frank says, so they can't walk away, so they can't profit from the pain they've caused. Meanwhile, in a plane, Geller sits with Howe's men and is looking over the file concerning Frank Castle's second tour of duty in Vietnam. He asks what Marine Recon is, and they tell him that it's basically the Marines' version of Special Forces, which is just like what they do, and Geller is shocked. How continues to talk to Frank relates his sense of both honor and integrity. Holding the gun, he tells Frank that he taught him a lesson in necessity and mentions one last thing. The generals arrive outside the building. How comes out of the building, tells them that Frank is upstairs, and that he washes his hands of the whole thing. When they head into the building, Geller leaves a frank, frantic message on Perino's phone, telling him that once he discovered what Marine Recon meant, he began to put the pieces together and dug into what is known about the tour including a mission into the jungle in 1969 where Frank Castle led the liberation of a prisoner of war camp, one of the prisoners of which was Colonel Howe. He concludes by saying that he's not sure that Howe's, what Howe's going to do, especially if he's seen that tape. Howe stands on the street corner and he lights a cigar. We cut to Nick Fury sitting at a bar and reading from the book Valley Forge, Valley Forge. We've seen excerpts from this through the whole part, through all six parts of the story. The book has basically been a retelling of what he knows about the bombing of Firebase Valley Forge, his brother's own experience in the war, and a recollection of several veterans. A way of getting secondary source and multi-perspective account of what we saw in Bourne, as well as the war as a whole. There have also been a few photographs of Frank in Vietnam, as well as others of, ba- of the battles and situations featured in the book, much like you'd expect from a book like this. And we get to the very end, and it says, it's, a tw- it's at twilight or early in the morning that I remember Stevie best. The times he loved, the scent of transmutation on the breeze. I watched the sky perform its ordinary oracle and breathe air so ripe with chance and say my magic words, just to... Tysover, Valley Forge, Valley Forge. Valley Forge, Valley Forge, you're receiving over. I say again, do you read over? Valley Forge, we lost you. How do you read over? Valley Forge, this is America. Can you hear us now? Our lost 192, our cold dead 60,000. On your fire bases, your hills and paddy fields and rainforests, sprinting through the streets of ruined way, dozing on the decks of the Hueys, tapping magazines to settle bullets, fighting, lighting marbles off precious Zippos, smiling scared. Captured in the whir of Nikon, Leicas, and muddy footage where the colors seemed to swell and run, by our words could we conjure you. Could we conjure you up and raise you from that rich red soil and bring you back to lovers, sons and daughters, kin. To friends grown old without you, puzzled by the youths beside them in pictures. To the porches and stoops where you belong. Or will you always be that endless line of figures clad in green, receding single file between the sun-drenched trees, swallowed by gloom and glare in equal measure? The steady lope of men weighed down by packs, ammunition for the sixties X'd across the gunners, backs and bandoliers, canteens clumsy at your hips, humping the boonies forever. Valley Forge, Valley Forge. 
standing by to receive you. Over. Nick Fury, who has been reading and glancing at CNN, which is showing current violence in Iraq, takes a long swig of his drink and says, same again. The next page is from the book, Valley Forge, Valley Forge, and says, epilogue. In the end, the war in Vietnam was much like any other, on a black background. The next page is a splash of the generals dead on the ground with the book excerpt. There were those who profited. There is a picture of two soldiers from the book that says, those it devoured. Then the final page of the book shows the Punisher holding the gun Howe gave him and walking away from the dead bodies of the generals. The narration says, and there were those for whom there are no words. Punisher the Platoon was published from December 2007 to April 2018. This is the third storyline we're covering, and it's our six-issue miniseries that serves as a prequel to Bourne. The cover price on each issue is $3.99, and each cover by Goran Parlov has half of the Punisher's skull symbol against the black background on the left side, and a scene of the Punisher in Vietnam on the right. Issue 1 shows Frank in the jungle holding an M16. Issue 2 shows him surrounded by explosions and staring at the reader. Issue 3 is Frank leading his platoon through a swamp. Issue 4 is a headshot of Frank with the lights and neon of Saigon in the background. Issue 5 shows Frank and his platoon armed and looking around with the face of a VC girl looking down on them. And issue 6 is Frank flanked by his men in a chopper behind them. Just like the art inside, they're all great. They relate to something from the issue inside. They're not as striking as, say, Bradstreet's covers, but I like the trade dress and how they work with the story. Our creative team is as follows for the entire storyline. Garth Ennis is the writer. Goran Parlov, again, is the artist. Jordi Belair is the colorist, Rob Steen, letterer, Jay Bowen, designer, Anthony Gambino, production, Kathleen Wisniewski, assistant editor, Nick Lowe, editor, Axel Alonso, editor-in-chief, Joe Quesada, chief creative officer, Dan Buckley, president, Alan Fine, executive producer. The framing device is that of a bar where Michael Goodwin, who is Stevie's brother and he is the writer of Valley Forge, Valley Forge, is meeting with the men who served in Vietnam with Frank Castle a.k.a. The Punisher. He wants to know what happened to Frank on his first tour through Dom, as it's something he's never really been able to figure out too much about. In his mind, he only wrote the ending and not the actual story of the origin of The Punisher. Part 1 is called Crack the Sky and Shake the Earth. It's 1968, and the platoon meets 2nd Lieutenant Frank Castle, who immediately sets out to get to know them. He chats with the platoon sergeant, who tells them about the failings of their previous COs, and the next day he leads them into the bush, where all the intelligence reports say everything is clear, but Sarge warns that they are going to be under serious sniper fire. Frank gets on the horn and orders an airstrike. He says that he's spotted a flash of light in a nearby ville, and that suggests they're in danger. The bombers come in and they let loose. Clearly, this helped Frank gain the respect of his men. We cut to an underground VC bunker where a girl named Lee Kwang is getting bandaged up, having made it out alive. She's visited by an MVA soldier, Colonel Letrong Jep. He tells her that he thinks she has a lot of potential to be a leader, but she seems to be on a mission of vengeance of some sort. She wants to be able to take down the big lieutenant. He advises her to be patient and reminds her that Tet is coming. The men want to know how Goodwin, who has told them about Lee Kwang, knows this, and he says that he talked to sen- Senior Colonel Jap. And that's where we open part two, Mod Deuce, which begins with Frank and his platoon on watch on, at night on a firebase. Pretty soon, they spot enemy troops on the move, and a firefight begins. Jap watches from a hill and uses the opportunity to tutor Lee Kwang on strategy and how she must be patient in a very long war. The firebase begins to be overrun and the platoon fight begins fighting hand-to-hand and using bayonets. In the middle of this fray, Frank notices that nobody is manning the Modus, which I should note is the nickname for a Browning M250 caliber machine gun. He gets to it before the NVA troops and begins firing away, hitting a couple of them at very close range. They win the battle and then see an explosion, which indicates the Kaysan has been hit. Frank concludes that they're either going to be evacuated or they're in for a siege. Part 3 is called The Black Rifles. It's about how during the opening days of the Tet Offensive, which began 10 days after the previous issue ended, the platoon began secretly arming themselves with both enemy rifles as well as a cache of decommissioned M14 rifles that were recently replaced by the M16. This is a notoriously uh, malfunctioning rifle. Remember the the NOM notes from early in our series where they used to jokingly use the line, you can tell it's Mattel because they were so bad they were almost like plastic toys. 
Frank manages to get the M14s from a supplier he knows, and he warns the guy that he heard, he's heard that heroin is going around, and he has to make sure he's no, it gets nowhere near his unit. Meanwhile, Colonel Jap is watching action from afar, and he talks to Lee Quang, telling her that her mission needs to, go, to be to go back to South Vietnam and recruit more people for the cause. She's resistant to the idea, because she wants to kill Americans, and especially Frank Castle. Frank and his men then return to Quezon. Frank immediately shows his effectiveness with their new weaponry by taking out a North Vietnamese sniper at very far range. Part 4 is called Absolute Consequences. This begins with a platoon on leave in Saigon. They solicit prostitutes while Frank and Sarge sit at a cafe and talk. Frank isn't much for that activity, and he and Sarge talk about how they're both from Brooklyn and how they have women back home. Sarge talks about how many guys in the platoon are short. Frank implies that he's re-upping because there's something about the war that is calling to him. Later, at another bar, a group of Green Berets begins harassing the Marines, and Frank intervenes and doesn't even have to throw a punch because they see the look in his eyes and they back down. Concurrently with all of this is an interrogation by a captured American soldier who has been brought to Colonel Jap by Lee Quang. He's questioned about American operations and relates the growing hopelessness over the Tet Offensive. After they are done, Lee Quang tells Jap about her past. She was a girl in a village that was raided by Americans. Her father threw her into a secret hiding spot and she wound up surviving. When she got out, she found a massacre similar to Mi Lai, which she mentions happened some weeks later. Since then, she has been motivated by revenge. Jap says that he has seen many incidents like that, especially since he has fought both the Japanese and the French, and he admits to ordering worse. We then move on to part five. This is called Deadfall. The platoon is in the swamp and finds the remains of another platoon that they were sent out to find. They're supposed to bag the corpses and call for a lift, but the radio batteries are dead and apparently the backup battery is as well because it's more or less been swapped out and sold on the black market. They make their way into the jungle, all the while being watched by Lee Quang and a few of her fellow VC soldiers. The platoon spots the VC and a firefight begins. They are up against a whole company of troops and do their best to hold their own. Molland, the radio operator, manages to get some juice into the radio and finds out that a C-130 is on its way and then he orders an airstrike. Back at the bar in the present day, the guys mention that this is where things get complicated, which is an understatement, of course. And Goodwin flashes back to his interview with Jap, who says that when he returned to the bunker at the time, he realized that what Lee Quang had done was tell command that an entire Marine company was in the jungle. And this is a gross overstatement, but she wanted to have a huge company of NVA soldiers at her command. It was, in a sense, a fulfillment of her thirst for American blood. And then he explains that during the firefight, she managed to get up into the trees and she began to shoot at the members of the platoon, picking them off one by one before dropping in on Frank Castle and stabbing him. The final chapter of our story is called Happy Childhoods. While the fighters are en route for the airstrike, Lee Quang is fighting Frank in a brutal confrontation, stabbing him and biting him. He finally gets the upper hand and stabs her, something the sergeant relates to Goodwin and the guys at the table, because while he was lying on the ground bleeding, he had a direct view of the confrontation. Up on the hill, Colonel Jap orders that they cease the offensive. As NVA begin its retreat, Frank orders one of his men, Kappa, to put his hands in Sarge's wound so that he survives the gunshot. The fighters execute the airstrike, and soon the choppers come to pick everyone up. The wounded wind up heading back to the world via the hospital, and we find out that Donald, the black market guy who had been getting them the N14s and then swiped the good radio batteries to the black market, wound up getting fragged. We find out that a couple of guys re-upped and wound up dying soon after. Frank Castle re-upped as well, and Goodwin says this is what set him on the path to be what he became. Sarge then says, Mr. Goodwin, you're a writer. That's what makes you ask questions like that, but it's also why it's going to be hard for you to understand this. Because it's like what happened between him and that hardcore little chick. It just ain't none of your business. Frank Castle saved the life of every man in this platoon. Got him through one a nightmare after another, sent him home to have kids and grandkids wouldn't even have existed otherwise. Some of them he shielded with his own flesh and blood. You understand how important that is? You see how much more important it is than first kills and the Punisher and all the other answers to the mystery you people always want to know? You see the kind of man he could have been? Goodwin responds with something that Jap once said when he was talking about Kaysan, and that Quezon was like the whole war in a microcosm. The Vietnamese fight for their country while the Americans fight for nothing with no idea why they're doing it at all. 
He then corrected himself and he said that the best of them were fighting for each other, but love is not enough to win a war. Finally, one of the men tells the story about the last time he saw Frank Castle. He was on a chopper that was lifting off to Okinawa where he was going to be treated for his broken leg. Frank walked into the chopper and, quote, didn't say much, just wanted to see me on the slick. I knew he wouldn't wave back. All he'd do was turn and walk away. Walk away from us all, I guess, without a backward glance. Headed for everything that was waiting. All the same, I watched him for as long as I could, this little figure, not moving once. Then the Huey dipped and we were gone, and that was the last I ever saw of him. And the last page is a wide shot of the base where Frank Castle with his arm in a sling, waving at the departing chopper. And that is all three stories. I do have my opinions, I do have my review, but before that, I am going to take a quick break. So I'll be right back after this. The time is out of joint. The time is out of joint. The time is out of joint. The year is 1994 or 1944 or maybe 2994. Time is under threat and history is falling apart. Who will survive this crisis? And how will history be changed for those that do? Zero Hour Strikes takes you back to that DC Comics crossover and covers the entire story, issue by issue, tie-in by tie-in, as the DC Universe goes down to zero. Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes, Zero Hour Strikes, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember Legion. I had decided to recap all the comics as once as I was at once as I was writing this, um, because the more I thought about it, the more I saw them as like three parts of a larger story. Now I will confess that these are the only Garth Ennis Punisher stories I've ever read. I'll also confess that with the exception of the first few issues of his '87 ongoing, which I covered a couple years ago on Origin Story, uh, which was a mini series I did over at Pop Culture Affidavit, and you can still find that over there. And a random issue here and there in the 90s, the comics that I went over as part of my regular coverage really were the only Punisher comics that I ever read. So there may be more stories by Garth Ennis that feature Frank Castle in Vietnam. I know that his run on the character, which started in the early 2000s and was part of the more mature lines of Marvel Comics and might actually not be part of continuity, were considered to be pretty groundbreaking and they get a lot of positive mentions. I want to say that Andy Leyland covered one of the stories on uh, Hey Kids Comics a number of years ago, in fact. So you could go over there. It's on the Two True Freaks feed if you're interested in hearing somebody talk about uh, some Garth Ennis Punisher. So what's cool about this is that Ennis' storylines do not require you to know very much about the Punisher, beyond the fact that he's a vigilante that goes around killing criminals, and his origin can be traced to the fact that his family was gunned down when they were at the wrong place at the wrong time. They witnessed a mob hit in, I think it was Central Park or something. Know that much, this is all easy to follow. In fact, it's so easy to follow that I originally read this entire thing in complete reverse order. I had started with the platoon because I bought that off the stands when it was coming out. And when I was reading some reviews of the storyline, I learned that Valley Forge, Valley Forge uh, was tied into this. So I went to my LCS It was easy to find in the back issue bins. I paid about 50 cents an issue. So I read that. And then, while I was doing some more research for this very episode, I discovered that the platoon was intended as a follow-up and a prequel to Born. So I quickly found that on Comixology. I had originally thought of covering it in chronological order, as far as the story goes and not the issues go, with the platoon coming first because it was Frank Castle's first tour, and then Born followed up by Valley Forge, Valley Forge, because that particular storyline takes place mostly in the present day, with some flashbacks to Nam. But when rereading these storylines in publication order, I realized that what Ennis does is brilliantly move us along in the present day while moving back in the past, and even though he wrote it over the course of 15 years, it's through the line of uh, the Goodwin brothers so he shows that he intends it to be read in order of publication, especially since the Sarge's speech at the end of the platoon does serve as a concluding point of sorts. Story-wise, I think that Valley Forge, Valley Forge was my favorite of the three, mainly because I really liked the cur- character of Colonel Howe and the twist that Ennis threw in of his having been saved by Castle as well as how Ennis and Parlov did the sequence of Howe leaving Frank to kill all the generals. It's really, really good. But I'm getting ahead of myself. What we have here really is a much more mature version of what we saw through three storylines in the Nam and the Final Invasion trade paperback. Although Ennis seems to give at least a nod to the original continuity, they aren't 
you know, part of that continuity. Remember, the first story was later in Frank's time in the war. It was by then, it was almost like an urban legend sort of story. This tale of a guy who seems superhuman as a fighter in Vietnam. The last storyline we read when he re-upped and changed his name was the middle part of the whole saga, and it included an improbable rescue of several POWs from a hellish camp run by the NVA. Granted, in the stories written during the 90s, writers like Chuck Dixon and Don Lomax were playing up the action hero and even the Rambo-ish nature of the character. And then it really did fit with the style of the time. But even though Ennis is going for something less cartoonish and more horrific and realistic in nature, he is giving us a similar story and similar tone in places. While Valley Forge, Valley Forge is an actual Punisher story because it is the special ops team facing off against the Punisher. The most Punisher fades the nom of the three storylines is Born, because Castle is presented as a towering and intimidating figure. Sure, he's like that in the platoon, but here he's the most superheroic, and that's because, as Michael Goodwin says in the beginning of the platoon, the story that's being told there is the end and the closest point to the Punisher. Ennis Robertson and Palmer give us this man surviving an impossible situation type of story where he gives into an inner darkness that will eventually consume him. Something that upon my first read of the comic I thought was a little overdone, but after reading it a second time came to like it a little more. Funny enough, Bourne is actually my least favorite of the three, even though it's that's not really much of a criticism because I really enjoyed all three storylines. You just If you have to rank them, I put this third. What I like about the way Ennis writes the story and frames it overall is how he makes Stevie the narrator of most of the story, and through Stevie does more or less exactly what Doug Murray did with Ed Marks through the first year of the NOM. He gives us the representation of the stereotypical kid in the war who's also a stand-in for the reader. Stevie is the good kid in a hellish setting, who is scared of Frank but also sees him as someone who can be helpful. And over the course of the story, we see that Frank not only thinks well of Stevie, but also rubs off on him. I think that without Frank leading the platoon, it's possible Stevie would have succumbed to some of the vices that other people in the platoon do. And he certainly wouldn't have looked out for Angel the way he did throughout the storyline. Bourne owes a big debt to Ed Marks' tour in Vietnam during issues 1 to 13 of the series, because he was very much the naive, even scared kid in that very hellish place, and while he saw his fair share of corruption in characters such as Top, he also managed to find good people, and that allowed him to remain a good person, even through his return to Vietnam in 1972 as a journalist. Granted, Doug Murray was going for a realistic depiction and had the restrictions of the comics code. Ennis has none of that. But reading the war through the eyes of Stevie Goodwin puts me back in those beginning days of our title and is a reminder of how truly groundbreaking Doug Murray and Michael Golden's storytelling was. That being said, these Punisher stories are significantly more graphic in both language and the depiction of the war than the NOM ever was, even if our title pushed the envelope as much as it could. In some cases, that is a strength of the story. Derek Robertson's artwork is very detailed. It's reminiscent of the independent comics I've read, more than mainstream superhero books. The blood and gore are on full display, as is the foul language. Whereas Murray and other non-writers sometimes got away with a few choice words, they never were really able to truly show the language that soldiers would use while in the war. Ennis doesn't have such restrictions and lets colorful words fly. In this manner, the writing and the art skirt the line of being gratuitous and almost showing off how much they can get away with. However, in Bourne, Ennis and Robertson never fail to remind us that there are true horrors of war even when they are showing a head getting blown off in gory detail. Knowing that, I wasn't turned off by very much. Although, I will say that the scene where McDonald rapes the VC girl did make me feel uneasy. And while I know that happened, I do have to wonder if it was necessary for Ennis to put it in the story. I mean, the point he was trying to make with the scene was that Frank kills this girl because he saw it as an act of mercy, the killing as an act of mercy. Especially when it, he explains to Stevie that the Arvin soldiers who would have interrogated her had they kept her alive, probably would have done the same thing, and that merciful cruelty is supposed to scare Stevie. While it does work, it didn't ruin the story in my mind. I, just, I don't like rape being used as a plot device, so it's more of a personal preference here, even if it does logically make sense in the confines of the story, or if it was a realistic depiction of something that actually did happen. It's just, like I said, it's a personal preference. But beyond that, the action plays out, and it's very well orchestrated, and it drives how, home how brutal Frank will become as the Punisher, even if the ending puts a little too fine of a point on it. 
Granted, that dark, dark voice putting on that point on it matches the tone of the rest of the story, so I can't criticize it too much. But where I think that Valley Forge, Valley Forge succeeds more than Born is that it takes it one degree away from the Firebase attack story and combines that with the Punisher in action. In all three stories, Frank is more or less the main focus of the story, but he's not necessarily the main character. Born is as much Stevie's story as it is Frank's. The other two are Michael's story as well as the stories of those who are with Frank or against him in some way, like how in Valley Forge, Valley Forge. I love that particular storyline for a couple of reasons. First, Ennis once again delves into tropes that we see with action movies and television shows. In this case, we have a corrupt group of men in power who want their problem eliminated, and that problem happens to be a very hard target. Second, he grounds the action in a pretty realistic setting, having Frank be well-armed, but not being some over-the-top, pumped-up Schwarzenegger type of hero that he might have been about maybe 15-20 years earlier. In this case, he's careful, he's calculating, and why it may seem a bit cliche to have him, quote, keep his honor by not killing the American soldiers who are after him, it plays right into the character we met in Born, and it adds another layer to who this person is. And I'll get to that in a bit, because I want to talk about the story, which, like I said, is my favorite. I like the hubris of the generals, who hire Howe because they think he's efficient and that they can work around the fact that he's an honorable person who's intent on due process, which is why they have Geller in there as their stoolie. But Howe's one of those characters who's almost like a Jim Gordon type, the straight man in a corrupt system who knows he is working with and is now experienced enough to play his cards very close to his vest. That's why the twist in the last chapter works so well. He doesn't like working for these generals from the beginning, but when he sets out on the mission, he feels that there's a need to take care of Frank Castle. By the end, he's seen that he was being manipulated, especially after watching the tape they were so concerned about. So washing his hands of the things and walking away to them to let them be killed, and the fact that he's so confident in Frank's abilities that he gives him a gun with just enough bullets for each person is so great. It is a great character moment. Like Bourne, Hennis does rely on us knowing at least on a basic level who the Punisher is, but doesn't require us to know anything beyond the basics of the character. Like I said before reading these stories, I'd never read any of his Punisher stuff, but didn't feel what I, that I was missing anything by just jumping in here. All of his characters, new or old, are fleshed out well enough for even the most inexperienced reader to latch onto. And Goran Parlov's artwork is outstanding throughout both storylines. I have nothing against Eric Robertson and Tom Palmer, because their work on Bourne really fit the tone of that story, but I love the artwork on these two stories more. They reminded me in a way of uh, Matt, Matthew Southworth's art on Stumptown with Greg Rucka. In fact, while Ennis definitely has his own writing style, I consider Valley Forge, Valley Forge to be Rucka-esque in some ways, and I mean that as a compliment. The decompressed writing for the trade here is well-paced. It's packed with enough per issue to feel like you're getting your money's worth, which is also good. And it's something that continues in the platoon, which never takes Frank's point of view, and instead focuses on the men who served with him when he was younger. I mentioned that the platoon was meant to be a prequel to Bourne, and that's why I considered covering that story first. But I decided against it when I reread it and thought about the speech that the Sarge gives at the end. The reason for that is also what's found in the very first issue of the series, where Michael is sitting with the guys who served under Frank Castle and tells them what he want, that he wants to know more about his first tour in Nam, because he feels like he's, quote, written the ending but not the story. When we meet Michael in Valley Forge, Valley Forge, he more or less shows us the focus of his writing is to get into the head of the Punisher and explain who he is by showing how he came to be. The thesis, therefore, is that he was shaped by what are now tales of heroism in Vietnam. The destruction of Valley, Firebase My, Valley Forge, where Michael Brothers Stevie also died, being the most important. And what we get in Valley Forge, Valley Forge is twofold. First, we get the brother trying to understand exactly what happened so he can get some closure when it comes to Stevie's death, even though it has been decades since it happened. Second, we get the creation cementing of a legend, and the significance of the title, by the way, is not lost on me, because if you're a student of American history, you know that the most famous story, or one of the most famous stories concerning George Washington during the Revolutionary War, was that of surviving a harsh winter in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, a year after his famous crossing of the Delaware River and the Battle of Trenton. While much of what we talk about regarding Washington's time of Valley Forge is factual, there are parts of that story that have become more legend than truth. 
And I say this not to denigrate the man's accomplishments, but to state what's a pretty common occurrence in history, because very often tales of historical heroism often have their share of embellishment. Here, we have a story of survival and heroism on the part of Frank Castle that's both true and embellished, forging a sort of legend that Michael is researching in hopes of digging into the truth of who this mysterious person is. By the time we get to the platoon, he feels like he's not done and that he's going to really finish constructing the Punisher, and instead what he gets is the humanity of a man named Frank Castle. The platoon is about a man who cares about his brothers in arms, and we slowly come to that point over the course of six issues. Michael kind of drives the narrative, doing a pretty good job of conversing and interviewing these men, but at the same time failing at his job because he's approaching it with a good amount of confirmation bias. I like the story of Lee Kwang as the player on the other side, especially the way it matches up with the sniper storyline from the very first Punisher in the Nam story. There's someone just as committed and ruthless who will be a formidable foe for Frank, and has as much potential to become what he will on his third tour, but winds up not having the rather stoic nature that he does. There's a patience and a control to Frank that Colonel Giap wishes his protege would have, and I thought that Ennis' characterization of this grizzled war veteran of the NVA was a very good one. He gives the enemy soldier a certain amount of gravitas, and does not lean into stereotypes of evil commie Asians, which we do see from time to time, even in the Nam. But beyond the combat plot that has to drive our action, there's something that Ennis does that here that made me really appreciate the platoon as the final chapter in this trilogy of sorts. He takes the time to show more of the man than the Punisher. Yes, there is the man there and born, but the implication is that the man will eventually be replaced and the darkness will soon overtake him. Here, in the platoon, he offers a counterpoint to that story. He shows us this man who generally cares about those around him, ending with that speech that serves to provide clarity that we, as the reader, as well as Michael, the character, need. I mentioned the confirmation bias on the part of Michael when interviewing the men from the platoon. And what we have is that he's so focused on doing this long-form psychological profile of Frank Castle that he's basically trying to get what he wants to hear so he can continue his thesis from the first book into the next book, only to set it earlier to say that Frank Castle was always the Punisher. But Sarge hasn't put the brakes on that and explains within the greater context especially because unlike his brother, Michael was never there and he never had the chance to really see this person. When you take it all into context, it's a powerful moment and it elevates what could have been just a series of graphic violence with a lot of cursing into a truly well-crafted story. This isn't some sort of dude bro aggro, oh man, the violence is, makes it mature and good. This isn't these type of comics. This is a well-written war novel that deals with themes of the effects of the war on the psyche, how we become corrupted by the violence around us, how even in the face of such horror, we can retain our sense of humanity, and how we tell our war stories and build up our heroes beyond the complicated people they truly are. Like I said, these are all available in trade. They're also available for digital download as both individual issues and collected editions. If you haven't had the chance to read them, I would highly recommend doing so. As for me, I'll be back with episode 97, and that means three episodes in a wake-up are left, and I will be doing my second-to-last regular episode with coverage of the NOM number 83 and a wrap-up of historical context for the actual Vietnam War, which will be looking at 1974 and 1975 with a special focus on the fall of Saigon in April of 1975. Until then, you can follow me on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. And as always, thank you for listening and take care. You have reached the end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and you can follow the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. Show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. 
please support this podcast and all the other Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at TwoTrueFreaks.com anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of The Nom.